Uh, well, good morning. Glad to uh, see you. Glad to be seen. Uh, have you ever wondered why you are where you are in life? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> good. Oh, that was my daughter. Okay, great. <laughs> you don't have to do chores this week. Way to go, Audrey. Okay. All right. If you, <laughs> she's like, every day I wake up with you parents. I wonder why. You know, and, and so you wonder like why the decisions I've made, you look back at the decisions that you've made in life and you wonder, you know, God, if I would have made this decision, would X have happened. Not, not like your ex, but like fill in the blank ex, okay? But like, you know, would this have happened? And um, we often wonder, Lord, would my life look different if uh, I would have made this decision or I would have gone to this school or uh, why am I in the place that I am in? And some of us here, my daughter included, obviously now I'm learning this, is like, yes, every day of my life. <laughs> you know, why, why am I where I am? And we usually ask that question uh, whenever we are in a season of anxiety uh, or fear or a nerve-wracking time of life. We usually ask that question, God, why am I here where I am right now in life. Just last week, I was in a different place, but right now, it seems I'm in a new season. Why, God? Why am I here in this place right now? And when we come to John chapter 20, the disciples are in probably the most nerve-wracking season and situation that they have ever been in. It has been three days since the leader of their movement was executed, killed, publicly, and there is no sign of him. And if you look in verse 19, you see where John says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Now that's important if you hold on to that phrase, the first day of the week, because this is the second time John has told us we're on the first day of the week. In John chapter 20, verse 1, he says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. So he's repeating that we're on the first day of the week. And the first day of the week just so happens to be in the Jewish calendar today, Sunday. Okay? Sunday. The Jewish calendar, just like ours, there were seven days. The day before was Saturday, the seventh day, also known as the Sabbath or the day of rest. And so the disciples know that if their end is going to be like Jesus, they're okay on the Sabbath. No one's going to come get them on the Sabbath. But they know what? the hourglass is running short. Their time is up. And on the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, they are coming to get arrested and possibly killed, just like Jesus was, if not before nightfall, then at least by nightfall. And here we are in John chapter 20, the evening of the first day of the week. And it's nerve-wracking because this is the way that any would-be revolution ended in first century Roman Empire. If you started a movement and you uh, said that uh, Caesar is not king, and in Jesus' case, it's I am king, and you were put down to death, so were your followers. Right? And, the, and if you wanted to continue on your movement, what you would do um, was you would basically say, okay, well, let's get this person's son to now step up and lead. Uh, there, there was, we know from history and in, in Acts chapter 5, there was a guy from Ga also from Galilee. Uh, he had a really cool name. You ready? Judas the Galilean. 
Very simple, very easy to remember, okay? And, and we know that he starts a movement in uh, AD 6, right around the time Jesus is born, and uh, starts a movement. Rome comes in, kills him, uh, crucifies his two sons, and Acts chapter 5 tells us that movement stopped. All the uh, followers were scattered. And so in the first century, if you had a movement that was put down, the way you would continue that was you would say, next in line, son. Well, here's the problem. Jesus didn't have a son. Right? And, and then you would say, okay, well, how about his family members? We, we already know from John chapter 7, not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. So how, what are you going to do now? You don't have a son to start the movement, keep it going. You don't have family who believes in him to keep that going. Okay, I know what we'll do. We'll go after Peter. Big problem. <laughs> Why? What has Peter done the last three days? I don't know him. So I, I've never talked to him. I don't know him. I'm not one of his disciples. And so these guys are in a really big problem. Really really big problem. And so we know when that happened, but I want you to notice where that happened. Look in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were. Now, I don't think I've ever noticed doors is plural. I've always read this and thought, Door. Okay, they're in a room and the door is locked. But if you stop and think about this, doors. We know from verse 10, uh, the disciples have gone back to their homes. And so now the evening has happened and we can assume that they are in someone's home. And maybe it's a, 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 a double, you know, a two-story home. Maybe there's a door over here and over here. We don't know. But what we do know is that there's doors. And if you know anything about fear, anytime you have fear in life, when there are multiple entry points into your life where fear can creep in, it's magnified over and over and over again. It's not like fear just comes in through a door. It's like, here, I'll just make it real easy for you. You know, it's like, oh, crud, we better, uh, okay, you know, it's my job at night. I go through and I turn off the lights and I lock the front door. I lock the door over here. I lock the door by the back. And then sometimes by the time I go lay down, I'm thinking, oh, did I lock the front door? You know, and oh, God, I got to get up, you know. And, and so that's how, that's how fear works, right? There's multiple entry points and it makes it worse when that happens. But I want you to imagine with me for a moment how intense that room or that house would have been where these disciples are. You've got Peter. Maybe he's on the first level and they can talk to each other and Andrew's on the second level and Andrew, of course, is a son of encouragement. And Peter starts to talk and Andrew's like, bro, I just want to encourage you right now. You need to shut your mouth. <laughs> you know? And, and Matthew's like, Man, I know, I, I told Jesus we shouldn't have given Judas the responsibility of taking the money. I knew it from the beginning, man. I know finances. What does Jesus know? Judas, I knew he was gonna, I knew he was gonna betray us. And it's tense in there. And then you got like Simon the Zealot like off in the corner and he's got his little dagger and he pulls it out and he's like, it's Judas the Gal Galilean all over again. I can't believe I fell for another false Messiah from Galilee. And he's cleaning his dagger. And he's like, we got to get out of this place. Fear is all over this room because they know it's coming. And in the middle of all this fear, 
look what happens in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Now the riddle in your mind is, how do you get in the room? The doors are locked. That's the riddle in all of our minds. But here, here's a, I can solve it for you real easily. If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, then getting into a locked room really isn't that hard. Okay? Like, not, you, it, it's like, oh man, I just gave up on the faith because Jesus couldn't, you know, how to get into the room. Well, have you really thought through where we believe that a man is God and he rose from the dead? So if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, getting into a locked room is not that difficult. And there's a lot of assumptions that we make here. This just shows, um, you know, where, how did Jesus get into the room? Well, he went through the doors. Really? Did it say he went through the doors? Doesn't say, does it? We make a lot of assumptions. He appeared. Just like he has done before in John chapter 6. We don't have to go there. You don't have to, well, for time. John chapter 6, remember the disciples are out. They're about four miles out in the water. And a storm comes. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He's, been, he's walked out on the water for four miles. He appears to them. This isn't the first time this has happened. And, and what is it? They think he's a ghost, right? And it says in John 6, if you go look at it later, and they were frightened when they saw him. I want to submit to you this morning that the disciples' biggest problem at this moment is not fear of the Jews, but it's fear of Jesus. The biggest moment right here, their biggest fear at this moment is Jesus is here. Have you ever been standing in your kitchen and uh, minding your own business, and all of a sudden your kid just creeps up on you, and it's like, what, where are you from? You know, <laughs> the the other day I'm uh, I'm showing a house, and um, we're we're looking at the out, out into the backyard, and there is this um, telephone pole, and my my client and I we start making fun of the telephone pole, and and uh, and we're talking about it, and it's like, ah, oh, it's a deal breaker, you know. Let's just move on. Thirty minutes later, I get a phone call, and it's. Hey, Stephen, this is Jane Doe from blah, 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 Realty. Not like the Jane Doe, but like Jane Doe, you know, like and, and from Realty. The, the seller uh, was listening to you guys talk, and we realized you don't want the house, but here's what she had to say about the telephone pole. And I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> if Jesus can raise from the dead, and if Jesus can appear out of anywhere, does it not follow he knows exactly what they have been saying to one another? Does it not follow then that he knows exactly where their fears are coming from and their doubts and then all of a sudden out of nowhere he appears and it's like oh no Jesus no man we knew you were coming through <laughs> you told us remember he is not here he's risen just as he said in Galilee you know the son of man must be you know given out delivered to the hands of sinners oh we knew that man we had that memorized Jesus and there's Jesus at that moment he enters into their deepest fears. And for the disciples at this moment, Jesus is more frightening from, than the Jews are in the disciples' life. So let me ask you a question. If you're the disciples, what do you expect to hear from Jesus? If you're the disciples, what do you expect to hear from him? Depart from me. I never knew you. 
right? These last three years have been a sham. Look at you guys. You don't believe this. I'm disappointed in you. Oh, how I'm disappointed in you. Oh, how he's disappointed. Yeah, see, you know, like, the, what, what is it? What, what do you think they're expecting to hear from Jesus at this moment? I expected more from you, Peter. Thomas isn't even there yet. So he gets left out. We'll see him next week. If I'm Jesus... I'm going Thanos on these fools, all right? I'm going Thanos, just, you know? I'll find, an, I'll find another way to reach the world. You guys obviously have failed me all this time, and here you are. No, no, no. Hear these words. At their moment of fear from the Jews, and now fear, how is he gonna treat me? What's his disposition to me? What does Jesus say? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. This is John 14, 27. Look at it in John 14, 27. Flip back. Jesus has told them before he ever left. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be what? Troubled. Neither let them be afraid. How does the world give peace? Empty promises. That's how the world gives peace. Oh, you failed me? I'll find someone else. In that day, there would have been an altar that Caesar Augustus had uh, established when he's establishing the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. There was an altar of peace, and it was to symbolize the rule and reign of, August, of Augustus Caesar, how he was going to spread that and how his kingdom would last forever. Do you know today you can spend $10 in Rome and go see that monument? It's empty. It's short-lived. In our society... Our figure of peace is Santa Claus, <laughs> right? So the world gives peace by saying, here, trust in this empty promise. And by the way, we'll take $10 out of your pocket. That's how the world gives peace. But Jesus told them, my peace I give to you. And now here they are face to face with Jesus after abandoning him in his darkest hour. And he says to them, Shalom, peace. I mean, I'm reading this this week and I just think, how many times have I been backed into a corner in my life? How many times have I said, God, are you gonna come through? You, you're gonna make it on here? The mortgage is due, God. How are we gonna make ends meet? God, my kid is sick. God, I've got all of these things, these fears, and my back is against the wall. And if you don't come through, and, in the, and on the evening, the 11th hour, Lord, are you coming through? It's 11.59. You know what? He's not going to come through. I'll take matters into my own hands because that's always worked out well. I'll take matters into my own hands. And if your view of God is even after, at the moment of your biggest failure of him, he looks at you and says, I'm so disappointed in you. You've got the wrong God. Because this God comes and says, shalom, peace. All the while the Bible is saying that for those who belong to him, he even shows up in our most epic failure and says, shalom, 
peace. And when Jesus talks about peace, he's not referring us back to the 1960s or uh, Zoloft where we just, you know, kind of all just chill, take a chill pill and just kind of relax a little bit here. The idea behind peace is the biblical idea of shalom or the way things ought to be or all things working together for good. And shalom is what God brings into the world when, he, when, you begin, when you open the Bible and you read in Genesis 1. God brings shalom or peace into the world at creation. In Genesis 1, the world it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovers over the darkness. And God comes and he creates the world and it's formless and void, meaning it's uninhabitable and unproductive for man to be able to live. And so on, he forms it and he fills it in days one through five. And on day six, he's prepared a place for his people and he creates Adam and Eve on day six. But not long after, as we all, this is the world that you and I live in, not long after Adam and Eve vandalize God's shalom by breaking his law and sin and death and fear are now present in the world and it's not the way things ought to be. Notice what Jesus does next in John chapter 20. Jesus came and stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. And then what does he do in verse 20? When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, if you go to Luke's gospel and you read Luke's gospel, you don't have to turn there now, but if you go and you read this account in Luke's gospel, Luke says he showed them his hands and his feet. So which was it? <laughs> Both, right? Think about it. Jesus was on the cross, and I don't, uh, you know, you can think philosophically about all, how all this happened, but he was a hunk of meat. When he was hanging on that cross, he was, he was despised. He was beaten beyond recognition, and so he didn't just have like a clean scar here and here and here. He had everywhere. And somehow in this resurrected body, he is, and I don't know, are they scars? Are they open wounds? We, we don't know. But what we do know is that Luke says he had a scar here and a scar on his foot. John says a scar on his hands and his side. Why? Why does John point that out when Luke says hands and feet? What John is doing here is he's connecting God's work of creation from Genesis to God's work of new creation in the gospel. Follow along with me here. Remember when God created Adam? Right? God creates Adam and he makes him as a gardener to basically keep the garden and to expand the boundaries of that garden and to uh, fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover uh, uh, the, ocean, uh, the earth. And... Uh, God brings helpers to Adam, right? And there's not one suitable found for him. So what does God do? God puts Adam to sleep and he takes what? A rib from his side, right? And Adam wakes up and there is a helper suitable for him. And when John writes his gospel, he's wanting you to see that in Jesus, the God of Israel is bringing about a new creation, a new creation with a true and better Adam. And the bride that God gives Jesus comes not after Jesus wakes from sleep, but after he raises from the dead. 
And you've got to see this Genesis connection that John is bringing because when Jesus in a second is about to walk up to these guys and breathe on them, and that stuff gets really weird really quick. <laughs> like, peace. Oh, man, thanks. Hands inside. Cool. <laughs> What's going on here? You're just showing up out of nowhere, and now you're breathing on us? Like, what, what is... John is doing a lot of symbolism here to connect us back to Genesis, Right? There's a Genesis connection here. Otherwise, if you don't see that, you just think that Jesus is shape-shifting and he is truly crazy, walking up and breathing on people. But remember, what day of the week are we in? The first, right? The first day of the week. And when Jesus stood before Pilate, it was Friday, the sixth day of the week, right? And Pilate when he condemns Jesus, says, behold the man. On the sixth day, behold the man. Right Here's God's new man of creation. Pilate doesn't know what he's saying, but John is drawing this connection for you. Behold the man. And then Jesus goes to his death, and what does he say? It is finished. John is writing this way so that you see the events within the flow of creation. The six-day work is done, and on the seventh day, God rests. But this time, he rests in a borrowed tomb before the new creation event. And on which day of the week does new creation happen? The first, right? Look, look in verse 1, chapter 20, verse 1. Look, look what happens. Now on the first day of the week, when Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb early, while it was still dark. So before there's light, there's a, there's a theme of darkness. Darkness is over the face of the earth. And God's going to bring a new creation out of that. Look in verse 15 of chapter 20 and look, look what happens. Chapter 20, verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him rightly to be what? A gardener. Genesis connections all over this place here. Who was Adam? He was a gardener. She, he raises from the dead in a garden, and she supposes him to be a gardener. And then you come to the end, to later on in chapter 20, and what happens? Jesus shows up, and he does what to the disciples? breathes on them. And what did God do when he created his people and constituted his people? He breathed life into Adam from the ground. And all of this is happening and taking place here so that you can see that just as God breathed his spirit into Adam, the gardener at creation, and constituted him a living being, what Jesus is doing here is he's constituting his church as a living being. Bring, being, sending us out to carry on the creation mandate and the mission of God. Now, for my theologians in here, I don't take receive the Holy Spirit to mean that Jesus is giving them the Holy Spirit at this very moment, because in a couple verses, like next week, I don't know if, if Lance or whoever's preaching is going to be covering the next section, but the next section, guess where the disciples are? They're hiding behind locked doors again. <laughs> what? Their experience there was so far removed from my safe suburban life, I don't understand it. But I don't think Jesus is giving them the Holy Spirit. That doesn't come for another 50 days at Pentecost yet, okay? And also, uh, later on, in, uh, I think in chapter 21, you can look at this, chapter 21, verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. 
And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I don't think if you're empowered by the Spirit of God, you don't catch any fish. <laughs> right? <laughs> like Eddie, Eddie is like, oh man, <laughs> dang it. What Jesus is doing here is breathing on them is highly symbolic. Everything that has taken place in the last chapter is highly symbolic so that you see Jesus for who he really and truly is. So what does all this mean for us as a church? What is all this high level stuff, all this Jesus is the true and greater Adam and God's new creation? What does all of this mean for us? It means that we are a people marked out by shalom. It means that we are a people marked out by peace. We are a new creation people. And when you look at Jesus, what we see is new creation has scars and wounds. You see, God's work of new creation is not some program in some distant future that one day it will happen. God's program of new creation and bringing his kingdom has happened now. And the place where we see it most is in the midst of our scars and our wounds and our fears. And one day we will know God when those scars and wounds and fears will not continue to happen. But right now, God is a God of scars. And God is a God of shalom. And we see this best when we ask, Lord, why am I here right now? And we look at our lives in light of the gospel. So find your wound and you'll find your ministry. Where's your wound? Where have you been hurt? You think God is so unjust just to let that be an accident? Or let that be a throwaway in your life? Where, where, where's your wound? Find your wound, and that's likely your place of ministry. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus is not saying this in a seminary class or a nice, safe auditorium. Where is he saying, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you? Where are the disciples? Behind locked doors. And you know what they're planning to do? We got to get out of this city. We got to get out of here. And what's Jesus do? As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And if you forgive anyone's sins, wait, 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 wait. We got to go back to them? Yes. I'm not too sure if I get this plan. Find your wounds and you'll find your ministry with the gospel of peace. So when you come to John chapter 20 and you see... John says, they were hiding there for fear of the Jews. This has actually ratched up throughout the whole gospel. And if you remember, and I think it's in John chapter uh, 9 or 10, there was a man who was born blind, right? And Jesus heals him, and the Pharisees come, and uh, they basically say, hey, tell us about this. And uh, his parents are there, and his parents throw him underneath the bus. <laughs> well, he's of age. Let him tell you. And the man's like, oh, you want to be his disciples too? His parents are afraid of the Jews. He's not because he knows what God's done in his life. And you know what? The, the, uh, in John, I think it's 9 or 10, they say, uh, John says, and they kicked him out of the synagogue. And then you, you move on in John's gospel and you get uh, to chapter 12 where it explicitly says that if anyone confessed Jesus as the Christ, they were kicked out of the synagogue. And then you get to chapter 16 and you see Jesus says, hey, look, there's going to come a time when people... Kill you, 
they kick you out of the synagogue and kill you, and they think they're doing a service to God. And then, of course, in John chapter 20, Joseph of Arimathea, what does he do? He secretly at night goes and gets the body of Jesus. Why? For fear of the Jews. And when you come to chapter 20, verse 23, Jesus isn't saying that the church gets to play the role of God in salvation by forgiving people. Look at, look at verse 23. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now, if you just pick that up on a napkin, you might think, oh, I get to forgive people's sins. You've got to keep in mind what all is happening here in this context, right? Highly symbolic, everything that's happened here. What has happened to these guys? They've been kicked out of the synagogue, and if you don't have access to the synagogue, you don't have access to what? The temple. What happens at the temple? Forgiveness. Sacrifice. And they're cut off from it. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You guys are hiding behind these doors. It's really not you who should be hiding behind these doors. It's, you have the keys. You have the keys to administer the blessing of the temple. You have the gospel, which is what the temple's been all about, what the synagogue is all talking about, is the forgiveness that comes from the gospel. You have it. It's yours. And you're not thinking about this right. The irony is they have the keys and they're hiding behind the door when really the people on the other side of the doors should be afraid because they are about to miss out on the forgiveness that comes from the gospel. There's a lot of irony taking place here. So if you'll find your wounds, you'll find your ministry. And you don't have to look at your scars and hide in condemnation, whether it's wounds from another, your kids, your spouse, your job, stupid decisions you've made, self-inflicted wounds. You don't have to look at those wounds in condemnation. Look at those wounds this week when it comes up because wounds itch. Like that's just the thing about scars, right? At some point they itch. I've learned this since Kelly had C-section. Like sometimes you just be itching. I'm like, what's going on? It's just itch. It's what scars do. Next time they itch, peace because of Jesus. Peace be with you. Because of Jesus. And the good news this morning is that Jesus speaks peace and shalom and all things working together for good if you will find your identity in him and if you will take him by faith alone, if you will look to him and be glad in him. And when all of this new creation project stuff is completed, John writes another uh, gospel. It's a book of Revelation. In the end, we get this picture where the God of Shalom will wipe away every tear from our eyes with the very scars on his hands. And God, the God of scars tells us, death will be no more. Neither shall be there, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And so when you look back, when we look back, we'll see that the decision that got us there was solely by grace and peace from Christ. Let's pray.
Father, the announcement of forgiveness is here this morning in this, in this room because the gospel of forgiveness is here. People who often would despise you and who would abandon you and then who would not understand you, Lord. We remember Jesus' words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And Lord, that radical forgiveness, that radical peace, Lord, this morning, we pray that it would go and change hearts and that we would see lives changed by the gospel. Lord, that you would take this word and drive it into our hearts, that we would be a people of peace and of new creation. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.